Let's pray, beloved. Father, the sinner has no friend like your lowly son. Humble, yet with all power. Holy, yet merciful. Truth and grace, all for sinners. Slain and resurrected, ruling and coming to gather his bride and to make of her his everlasting treasure. We could not have a better Savior than your Son. There is no greater salvation than the one he purchased by his blood. And we would, O oh Lord, tonight see more of Jesus. Grant, O oh Lord, that we might have some vision of his greatness and that we might learn in some degree how to lead in a way that points others to him. Speak to us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all all right? No, some of y'all still eating. Y'all all right? All right, what's good? What's good? It's good to be with you guys tonight. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. We're going to, with God's help, settle in the last part of the letter, verses 10 to 18 where we see the apostle, as he customarily does in his letters, greeting various persons or sending greetings, in this case, from his apostolic team. But before we settle into Colossians 4, 10 to 18, I want to sort of skim this book a little bit as context. Turn with me to Colossians 1. Because arguably, the, the most exalted picture that we get of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament might be found just here in Colossians. Remember those, wow, those, that ineffable picture that we get in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is where Paul begins in giving us a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, a picture of his supremacy in creation, verses 15 to 17. And a picture of his supremacy in the new creation, in the church and his redeemed body, verses 18 to 20. And it's the same Jesus that Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, 
It's in this Jesus that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And this is why Paul can say in verse 8 of chapter 2, see to it that no one take you captive by empty deceit and philosophy, according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ, because, beloved, Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our fullness. And that's why in verses 6 and 7 of Colossians 2, we are to walk in him. We received him as Lord, so we walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul goes on to present to us our spiritual union with this Jesus and his life and his death and resurrection. So that Jesus isn't merely one who is supreme over all things out there. He's also supreme in here. He's in us and we are in him. So Colossians 2 verses 9 to 12. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's worth a year's worth of sermons right there. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority, in him also, notice all of this is in him, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus does has become ours by faith in him. We might ask, how is this possible? How can we who were sinners become spiritually one with the Son of God? Who can forget the beautiful words of Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15? And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, everyone who receives Jesus as Lord by faith receives the benefits of his sacrifice on the cross and the hope of eternal life. Everyone who believes is transformed and will be transformed. Here's here's how Paul put it in Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4. Look there. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And Paul goes on in the letter, he says, now on this basis, the fact that you have died with Christ and risen with Christ, you are hidden with Christ, and Christ is your life, and when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. On that basis, Colossians 3, 5 to 11, put to death your sin. On that basis, Colossians 3, 12 to 17, grow in godliness. On that basis, Colossians 3, verse 18, down to chapter 4, verse 1, live in marriage and family in such a way 
that reflects the glory and the greatness of God. On that basis, we speak to God and we speak to men. Colossians 4, 2 to 6. The entire Christian life, beloved, depends not on our strength. It depends, rather, on Jesus Christ and our union with him and the fullness we have received by faith in him and through that union. If you're here tonight and you've never been united with Christ by faith and repentance from sin, tonight's the night to do that. This Jesus who rules all creation and this Jesus who is making all things new, including the individuals who believe in him, this same Jesus will take you as his home, will nail your sins to the cross, will set them aside, not as if to ignore your sin, but because he has been the satisfaction, the offering given to God to pay the penalty for our sins. This Jesus will make you one with himself. This Jesus will be your fullness will live in you and you in him, never to be separated from him and his love again. Believe in this Jesus. Rest your hopes upon him. Wager your soul upon his love and his grace and the sufficiency of his sacrifice. Plead to him until he makes you his own. Trust in him. And when he appears... He who is your life, you will be glorified together with him. Now, this is the picture of Jesus that Paul gives us in this letter. And the question is, what do you do with that? Given all of this, is this merely lofty theology for theological eggheads? Is this merely the stuff that's discussed in academic seminaries? Is this merely the stuff that Bible geeks kind of have a good time with? Does this have anything to do with leadership in the Christian life? Well, I want to suggest that the, the real sort of purpose of leadership is to take all of this glorious truth about Jesus and to spread it in the whole world. To bring every nation and every people into contact with this risen, living, reigning, sufficient, fully God Jesus who saves sinners. And here's the thing, beloved, that can't be done with a leadership team of one. Not effectively. This is too much truth to carry with only two hands. This requires a team. And when Paul comes to Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 to 18, he is there greeting the church in Colossae on behalf of his team members. And what I want to suggest to you tonight, if you had taken notes, this is the, the main idea, is that spreading the gospel, and indeed Christian leadership itself, is a multi-ethnic team sport. So it's not a solo sport. This is a multi-ethnic team sport. Now, the Colossians 4, 10 to 18 includes Paul's final greetings to the church at Colossae, verses 10 and 11. Paul sends greetings from three Jewish partners in the gospel. In verses 12 to 14, Paul sends greetings from three Gentile partners in the gospel. Verse 15, Paul adds his own personal word of greeting. Then in verses 16 to 17, we find final instructions and exhortations before Paul signs off the letter in verse 18. And I want to sort of talk about leadership as gospel partnership 
based on five D's. Five D's. This is the outline if you're taking notes. Number one, the five D's of gospel partnership are, number one, dedication. Dedication. And there I mean dedication to the task, to the ministry itself. Number two, disappointments. Gospel partnership will require us to understand and to handle disappointments. Number three, devotion. And here, rather than dedication to the task, devotion to the team and the persons on the team. Number four, diversity. And number five, directions, that we follow the directions of Scripture. Colossians 4, 10 to 18. This is God's perfect, inspired, sufficient, authoritative, necessary word. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, I know it's customary to sort of get to an end of a letter like this and see this list of names and say, well, those people have gone to the Lord and their reward. We don't know who they are. Let's just kind of keep moving, right? But I think if we do just some brief biographical sketches of the people who are mentioned here, we begin to sort of see some qualities in this apostolic team that I want to suggest to you is what we should lead toward as leaders in our local churches, in the forming of teams, in the, in the sort of uh, deployment of teams. And these are the kinds of qualities we want to have as leaders and the kind of qualities that we want to encourage in our team if we want to emulate the apostolic model. And the first thing I want to point to is the dedication here. And we see this in a, a life of a man like Aristarchus. You see him mentioned there in verse 10. Aristarchus was a dedicated servant of the gospel on Paul's missionary team. We first learned of him in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. Paul was preaching in Ephesus. And so many people turned from idolatry to follow Jesus that the cell of idols dropped off almost completely. And so the idol makers, idol makers, you know, losing a little cheddar, losing a little cabbage in their pockets, they stirred the city into a mob to attack Paul and his team. The whole city, Acts 19 tells us, broke out in riot, and they drugged two men who were named specifically into the arena, Gaius and Aristarchus, which Acts 19.29 tells us were Macedonians who were Paul's travel companions. And here's what's striking. From that time on, when the crowd, the, the mob, 
grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus by the neck and drug them into the arena, you know where Aristarchus could be found? Right next to Paul. Now, I know some of us drug into an arena with a mob shouting for our death and saying, great is the idol that we've been preaching against. Some of us would be like, man, it don't take all that. Take all that. But not Aristarchus. Verse 10 of Colossians 4 tells us he even went to prison when Paul went to prison. And the word there uh, that Paul uses for fellow prisoner has the sense that Aristarchus volunteered to go with pr- to prison with Paul, probably to care for Paul. Here's a man dedicated to the task to the point of suffering. We want members on our team who are dedicated to the point of suffering if it advances the gospel. We see dedication not only from Epaphras, but also, or for, from Aristarchus, but also from Epaphras. It's a dedicated servant of the gospel as well. Paul especially notes his dedication in prayer. See there in verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And this is beautiful. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. Beloved, every gospel team needs some prayer warriors. Every team needs people dedicated to the hard work of prayer. Isn't isn't prayer hard work? Doesn't it take effort? If you don't believe me, when you kneel down on your bedside tonight to offer your prayers... And then you wake up like five minutes later. (laughs) You will know that it takes work to pray. According to Colossians 1 verse 7, it's very likely that it was Epaphras who founded the church in Colossae since, since the Colossians learned the gospel from him. It was Epaphras who had told Paul of the love of the Colossian church. He's all the way in Rome, Epaphras is, with Paul. The other side of the empire And guess who's on his mind? The Colossian Christian. It may be that sometimes out of sight, out of mind is true, but not for Epaphras. Out of sight and in his prayers. That's dedication. That's dedication. And so we have a man here who is dedicated to the point of suffering. We have a man here who is dedicated in the, in the exercise of prayer, the hard work of prayer. And then we get justice mentioned here, a dedicated servant of the gospel. There are three men in the New Testament with this name. This is the only time this justice, we believe, is mentioned in the Bible. All we know about him is what's said right here, justice, who is called, or Jesus, who is called justice. Now, in the first century, I'm told by the scholars Jesus was a common first century name. And it would be that way until Christian communities broke off in very sharp contention from Jewish communities. But I I suspect Justice here, Jesus, he lived before that split. And I'm guessing if your name was Jesus and you showed up in a community that was worshiping a Jesus, you might want to change your name. It would be humble of you to do so. I mean, if we tell the truth, even Jesus looks a little funny to us, right? 
We don't want to call nobody Jesus. That's just too close. Here's a man I think we can infer has a healthy amount of humility. He's given up his life to Jesus. It's no small thing, no big thing to give up his name to Jesus. And so rather than be known by Jesus, he's known by justice instead. And I think that infers a, a kind of dedication. So, beloved, whether it takes the form of volunteer imprisonment, relative anonymity and name changes, or hard work in prayer, no gospel partnership will thrive without dedication, and it's the leader's job to lead to this dedication, to exemplify it in their own lives and to, as we were hearing earlier in Danny's talk, to be looking for a people, a people who bring this same kind of heart for the work to the work of the ministry. And we must remain dedicated to the call the Lord has placed on our lives to, to spread this gospel in, in this team, right? We must renew our efforts each day so that in the long accumulation of days, we will be found faithful. That's the thing about dedication and success, beloved. It's so daily. It's the regular daily habits played out over the long term that amounts to dedication. See, daily Aristarchus was with Paul in prison. Daily Epaphras worked for them in prayer. Daily Jesus accepted the name Justice and served the team. Do not despise the dailiness of the ministry. That's how dedication is forged. So, beloved, are you dedicated? As a leader or a team member, are you dedicated to this partnership of spreading the gospel and the work that it entails? Does it show daily in your life? That's what we need. Which brings us to a second observation. Not only will we need dedication to the task in the ministry, but we're going to face some disappointments in the Christian ministry. How many of you know that? And those of you who don't, we'll find out must be prepared to face disappointments and yet continue in the dedication we were talking about. See there the reference to Mark. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas in verse 10. Familiar with the book of Acts and the early days of Paul's missionary work with Barnabas, then you no doubt remember the sharp argument that Paul and Barnabas had over Mark. Acts 13, 13 records the scene. It says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. And came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's it. Out of the blue. John quit the team. John Mark. He deserted them. And later in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41, we find the account of Paul and Barnabas' argument over this same young man. Verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. And see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. Perhaps the greatest missionary team in the history of the church, experiencing sharp contention. 
Paul, a man who had been found or sought out by Barnabas, and Barnabas who had vouched for Paul as Paul was making his way into the early Christian community and had been so much of an encouragement to Paul and labored together and suffered together. Here they were now, these men who had so much in common, looking at each other with hard feeling and misunderstanding, unable to resolve their disagreement about John Mark and so splitting and going different directions. You see, Mark was not like Aristarchus, who faced a riot and then traveled everywhere Paul went. By comparison, Mark seemed weak. He had failed the team, and he had disappointed Paul. When we read Colossians, though, that was 15 years ago. Now we come to Colossians chapter 4. Mark is now, in Paul's estimation, useful for the ministry, useful for the gospel partnership. Paul is glad to have him. And apparently, you see that parenthetical statement there in Acts 4, there's been some commendation already sent ahead of Mark so that they are prepared to receive him. Then there's Demas. You see him mentioned there in Colossians chapter 4? Mark was not the only disappointment that Paul faced in ministry. Verse 14, Demas was also part of the partnership to spread the gospel. He, He shows up in a lot of Paul's letters, and it's interesting contrast. John Mark started well, or started poorly, but apparently finished well. Demas was the opposite. He started well, but didn't finish. Next time we hear of Demas is in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, and Paul writes these words for Demas. The one who, I'm I'm inserting now, the one who traveled with me, served with me, preached the same gospel, saw the same sufferings. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What sadness must have been in the apostle's heart writing those words. What a blow it must have been to have one that traveled with you preaching the word to turn back to the world and desert the team. Let us take note of three things, beloved, where disappointments are concerned. Number one, we cannot take for granted that we will finish our race. We must persevere until the end. Demons, I'm sure, at some point thought he was good, thought he was golden, thought he was a made man in the kingdom of God. Paul's last words, written in the shadows of his own approaching death, was, Demas has deserted me for the world. Brothers and sisters, we must take the kingdom by force. We must press into the kingdom. We must not take for granted the work of God's grace in our soul. We must improve that grace. We must test ourselves and examine it to see whether or not we're in the faith. We must work out our salvation in fear and trembling. But there's many a man who's preached a mighty sermon to have fallen mightily shortly thereafter. So we must not take these things for granted or take our team members for granted. And secondly, we must recognize that not everyone who starts to race with us will finish with us. That's implicit, I think, in what I've been saying. But disappointments in the ministry and the church are a part of the Christian life. There's, there's no way to avoid disappointment in the Christian ministry and the Christian life unless you completely avoid people, in which case you are the disappointment. 
you do this work, you will have to grow strong enough to have your heart broken by people you love, by people close to you, by people you have invested in for years. They will sometimes break our hearts. And truthfully, we will sometimes break theirs. And here's the third thing. We may have to wait a long time before our disappointments are healed. Uh, the commentators tell us it was 15 years between Mark's leaving the team and Paul commending him to Colossae. See, beloved, some disappointments, some things are not consolable immediately, are not fixable quickly. Some things take time to heal. And we need to know these things as leaders, lest we have too short a view, lest our our horizon come too close to our nose and we're unable to see over the long arc of history and to anticipate the outworking of God's grace in ways that we can't see right now. One of the things we must do in order to avoid the, the crippling effects of disappointment is see beyond them to Christ and his coming and his kingdom. The critical thing in handling disappointments is that we must actually, well, we must apply the gospel, mustn't we? Paul has to confess his own hardness of heart toward John Mark. John is going to have to confess his failure of the team, and they both are going to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. They both are going to have to forgive one another deeply from the heart and love each other as brothers. That's That's the brown paper bag work of the gospel, ain't it? That's the work clothes of the gospel. Oh, the gospel isn't, isn't sort of most eloquently preached when we stand behind pulpits and we hold forth for an hour from God's word. There may be eloquence, there may even be power in the preaching. Oh, but forgive somebody. And you will know that God's work, is, his power has been at work in your life. Repent before someone. And you will know that the Spirit has been at work in your life, chastening you and removing things from the heart and changing the mind and softening those hard places. And so we must handle our disappointments with the gospel. I tend to think this is what has happened between Paul and John Mark. And let us be encouraged, beloved, as we look at Mark's life because because of the gospel, not every desertion is final. We have to do this work while, as I said before, taking the long view, especially the long view of people. We have to suffer disappointments without giving up on people, without shrinking back into mistrust and distrust, and without parlaying hard feelings from one situation into anticipatory grudges and hesitations in other situations. We've got to learn to leave that in Jesus' lap. And love hard anyway, through the disappointments and over the disappointments. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And that will sometimes mean the personal practice of reconciling with those on our teams who disappoint us or even hurt us. And we have everything we need to be able to do that in Jesus. Number three, we need devotion in our teams. For our partnership to be a treasure in Christ, we need dedication to the task and we need to know how to handle disappointments. But third, we also need devotion to one another personally. This is what we see in verse 14 where Paul mentions Luke, the beloved physician. 
Luke was a long-term member of Paul's team. Luke was not only a doctor on the team, but also the, the team historian. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke as well as the Book of Acts, which together form a two-volume history of early Christianity and probably served as a legal brief in, in Paul's defense in Rome. Luke seemed always to be at Paul's side. He was devoted to Paul. Think about how rare a physician might have been in the ancient world and, and how lucrative a practice he, he might have given up. Wouldn't it be great to have a Dr. Luke in your church staff, especially in this uncertain time of health care reform? <laughs> Luke gave that up to attend Paul. Paul probably kept Luke pretty busy, too. Think of how many physical needs Paul had from the suffering in his ministry. He's been shipwrecked three times. His Jewish opponents have whipped him. Mobs have beaten him, drug him outside the city, and left him for dead. And Paul drug himself back into the city for more. Apparently he had serious eye problems. Maybe from the vision of the Lord he saw on the road to Damascus. He was constantly in prison, which in the ancient world was not three hots and a cot. It was a damp hole and hope somebody brings you some food. And through it all, good old Dr. Luke is right there committed to his patient. And all our struggles with health issues and personal affliction, doesn't it make all the difference to have someone on the team who shares that with you, carries that with you, weeps with those who weeps, mourns with those who mourns? And what I simply wish to highlight here is that gospel partnerships are best formed and enjoyed where there is genuine personal devotion in the team. The partnership is not a contract or a business transaction. Beloved, you do realize that gospel ministry is a family business. There is to be a kind of mom and popness to it. We are brothers and sisters in arms. And you will know a healthy partnership when you see one. It'll be focused on the task of spreading the gospel with all the warmth of true friendship, true love. And beloved, that's harder to find than you might think. And some of you are here tonight as leaders and you're experiencing how hard that is to find. In all the gospel partnerships and elder teams I've known, I've only known a couple where the teams have been together for 20 or 30 years. I think of David Horner at Providence Baptist, recently retired with George Tashir, his missions pastor, for the, almost the entirety of David's 30-plus ministry there at that church. I think of Todd Wagner of Watermark Church in Dallas, been with his team of elders for some 20 years together. I first met them in Israel. He's taking his team to Israel for time together and personal devotion. There may be some other examples, but not many. More common, beloved, is loneliness in ministry. Surveys report that 75% of pastors say they do not have a friend in their congregation. Their wives report similar levels. Christy and I praise God for the friendships we have at our own church, but I well remember actually crying or praying tearful prayers in a previous church that the Lord would send me a bosom friend. So pressing was the isolation and the loneliness. And so let us pray for each other. The Lord would send friends and co-labors, devoted partners in the gospel ministry into our churches. Let's pray for a, a reversal of a sad state of affairs when three-quarters of pastors and their wives say they don't have a friend in their church. My answer to that is then you might, you might not have a church. 
if love is so cold that you can't find one friend? Let's pray against that for the well-being of our leaders and the well-being of teams and for the well-being of the church. So, how are you at personal devotion? Are you committed to, as we heard earlier, encouraging your pastor? I'm often asked by church members who want to see some growth in the sort of health and well-being of their church, or maybe they're slightly uh, concerned or unhappy with some aspect of their pastor's ministry. I'm I'm often asked, you know, how can I get him to see this thing, or how can I encourage him to do this thing? And my answer has become over the years, actually, make your main ministry a ministry of pervasive encouragement to your pastor. Not flattery, but genuine, thoughtful encouragement. It will do more for the growth of that man's soul and heart and his ministry than all of our criticisms multiplied and combined. And guess what? If your main ministry over the years have been encouragement, he will, like all the rest of us, be more inclined to hear you when you have a critique to offer. Encouragement is the context for correction. Let that be the case in our partnerships and in our response to our pastors. Number four, gospel partnerships, at least modeled on what we see in Colossians 4, ought to be teams of diversity. We see that in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 mentions Paul's Jewish partners. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. And in verse 13, Paul says that Epaphras, notice, is one of you, meaning that Epaphras was a Colossian a Gentile. That was also true of Onesimus back in verse 9. So Paul had on his team both Jew and Gentile in Christ. He intentionally built a team that reflected the body of Christ and the missionary aim of Christ. It wasn't simply that Paul himself became all things to all people, as he says in 1 Corinthians 9, but he also involved all people in the doing of all things. A healthy gospel partnership will have some measure of class, ethnic, and cultural diversity, where that's possible in the community where you serve. Some people often ask me questions about how to diversify their church. Multi-ethnic churches are kind of the sexy topic in Christian circles. Can you say sexy? (laughs) It's the popular thing in Christian circles these days. They see the power and the promise of diversity. They wonder, how do we get that? Here's my new answer, beloved, based upon Paul's example in this text. You ready? Genuine diversity only comes with radical sacrifice of privilege in order to fully embrace as equals the most spiritually alienated people among you. I'll give it to you again. Genuine diversity only comes with radical sacrifice of personal privilege in order to fully embrace as equals the most spiritually alienated people among you. In other words, beloved, you've got to hug the margins if you want to diversify the center. If the people in the middle care nothing about the people on the edges, you can never hope to be inclusive. It doesn't work that way. And where do I get this principle from? 
Well, I get a hint of it in the text where Paul says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. Only three men of his kinsmen according to the flesh are working with Paul in the gospel. And they have been a comfort to him, but I think we're meant to understand something of the personal cost Paul has paid among his own people in order to be faithful to Christ in the inclusion of the nations. I want to trace that for you in two other sort of biographical sections of, of Paul's letters. And I want to talk here a little bit about privilege. And I know for some of you that, oh, you're only talking about privilege. You don't hear about no privilege. <laughs> you're the ones who ain't laughing. <laughs> <laughs> but I want you to stick with me, beloved, because everybody in this room believes in privilege. You, you know it experientially, and I want to show it to you from the Bible. Experientially, show your hands. How many of you have ever used a phrase or heard the phrase used and never really questioned it, except that it is true? How many of you have ever heard the phrase underprivileged? We talk about underprivileged communities, underprivileged kids, and we have in mind people who don't have certain advantages, right? Now, a lesser heard term is overprivileged. Now, you might not have heard that much, but intuitively, you know, them Kardashians have too much stuff. They way overprivileged. They ain't got no business on my TV, right? You know? And most of us kind of assume in this sort of um, spectrum, if you will, from underprivileged to overprivileged, we are maybe roughly privileged enough. Or just a little bit, maybe we think of ourselves as underprivileged, you know, compared to certain other folks. You know this is a real concept. It's not one worth jousting against. It's, it's obvious in our experience. But more important, it's obvious in Paul's life and ministry and how he responded to his privilege is actually how he was able to diversify his team. So first, look at how Paul lays down his privilege in order to have Jesus Christ. So Philippians, turn that with me. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 to 10. If you you just turn backwards about two pages, you'll be right there. Philippians chapter 3, verses, um, around verse, let me start around verse 4. Or verse 3. Paul there says, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he starts to sort of boast, right? He starts to talk about his privilege. Notice what he says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm more privileged. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, now, I had standing. I was the right tribe. I had the right sort of religious pedigree. I was zealous for the church. I excelled my peers. He's talking about privilege, isn't he? But then notice what he does with his privilege so that they might have Jesus. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul said, I laid it all down. I counted it all lost. All that stuff that was precious in Israel, all that stuff that was precious in my Judaism, all that stuff that won me the applause and the the commendation of, of people in my own tribe for Jesus, nothing. Rubbish. I count it all as dumb. He died to his privilege that he might live to Christ. And beloved, if we have come to Christ, we too have died and must die to privilege in order that we might have Jesus more fully. But not only that, then you got to ask yourself the question, well now, Paul was an apostle. And as an apostle, surely he had some privilege in in his standing in the church. And you ask yourself your question, well, what did Paul do with his privilege as an apostle? And and in the interest of time, I won't take us there, but you you may know Acts chapter 2. Or or excuse me, Galatians chapter 2. And Acts chapter 15 and places like that where Paul committed himself to defending the inclusion of the Gentiles in the new covenant community of God, when Israel, the old covenant people of God, were still wrestling with the Gentile question. What are we going to do with these people who seem to be coming to faith in Christ? Do we include them in the church? And on what basis must they be circumcised first and then admitted to full communing membership of the church? You remember what Paul said. If you add circumcision to the gospel, then Christ has become of no effect to you. Is of no advantage to you. You've fallen from grace. This is the argument of Galatians chapter 5, isn't it? And so in Galatians chapter 2, when he recounts this thing, he says, listen, Peter acted like a hypocrite. He was chilling with the Gentiles at first, eating pork chop sandwiches and pulled pork barbecue from North Carolina. (laughs) And then some brothers from Jerusalem came down And, you know, he dissed the Gentiles and went to hang with them. And I opposed him to his face because he was not keeping in step with the gospel. And Paul defended their inclusion in the church, not on the basis of their becoming Gentiles first, but on the basis of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or becoming Jews first, but on the basis of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He used his privilege to embrace the margins. This is how he diversified his team. This is how he taught the church to actually be the church. One new man, Jew and Gentile, in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in his body, but in the leadership of his church. And so, beloved, what are you doing with your privilege? And who are the people most at the margin spiritually in your congregation, in your community? 
Are you using your privilege to gather those at the margin and bring them into the center? Because until or unless we die to that, let me tell you, beloved, it's like we're walking around with a kind of invisible force field around us. And that force field is, is sort of testing the, the racial, ethnic, class, cultural boundaries. It's, it's holding up these, these sort of tests, and, and people who don't pass can't get in. And they feel it, and you may not. This is why, beloved, sometimes people don't stick in your churches if they're coming from other ethnic groups and they're there for a little while and you see them kind of go off. I think it's good for you to ask, what kind of force field do we have up? What kind of racial or ethnic litmus test must people pass in order to be closer to the middle? In what ways are we guarding the boundaries of our fellowship? in ways that weaken the kind of diversity in leadership and in the church that Paul seemed to so regularly enjoy? And are we willing to pay the cost among our own people to see people not like us brought in deeper into Christ? This is what Paul is saying. He says, of all of Israel, there are only three Jewish people with me. Sinclair Ferguson commenting on this text along with some other commenters said, he speculates that Paul may have in mind the fact that he lost his, his biological family and was cut off from his family and his loved ones because of his commitment to Christ. I just want to say, well, apparently it wasn't just his family that got vexed. But much of his kinsmen according to the flesh. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. Are you, are you willing? Am I willing for my own people to misunderstand and mistreat me in order that the gospel might go to people not like me and they be brought into the center of Christ's fellowship. That's what Paul is up to. So who are those people most alienated in your context? And in what ways are you coddling privilege? Privilege isn't a dirty word, beloved, but it may be a dirty habit coddling it and keeping it in ways that hinder the work of the gospel in our communities. Who's most spiritually alienated in your context? Let me, let me give you three suggestions, three, three groups of people that I thought about working through this text in my own heart. People with disabilities. In what ways is your community receptive to, open to, actively seeking people with disabilities, and bringing them into the center of your fellowship. Have you even ever thought that someone with a disability might be qualified to be a leader in your church? Group number two, the poor. To what extent are poor people welcome in our congregation without being sort of constantly reminded of their poverty? without sort of being accosted by an unexamined middle-class set of values. I I am convinced that much of conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical, choose-your-term Christianity is essentially middle-class Christianity with middle-class aspirations and middle-class requirements for education and speech and dress that true of us? So I says the poor find no place among us. Is our proxy for who's qualified for leadership essentially khakis and button downs and a degree and maybe some success in a business world or a nonprofit community? 
in my community, there are no businesses or really not a great number of nonprofits. Those are not good feeding grounds for us for finding leaders. The corner is that young man who has several people running for him, exercising tremendous leadership skills in a, in a deeply depraved and fallen way, but who may be the next Peter or Paul. Can you see that in your community? That potential, that opportunity? A third category. Women, especially black women, often exist at the spiritual margins of our congregation. Now, they built the church, and they served the church, and many of our ministries simply would not exist were it not for those faithful women, like the faithful women in Luke 8, 3, who were trustees to the Lord Jesus. But, beloved, I'm a complementarian, joyfully, and yet I see my complementarian brothers lorded over women in ways that simply are ungodly. And fearful of the full spiritual maturity and the exercise of, of spiritual gifts of women in the body. Now, when I think about African American sisters and what many of them face, both in predominantly African American churches and predominantly white churches, the way they exist on the margins, almost invisible to the leadership of the church, almost invisible in the pastoral concerns of many churches. They feel like to me that they are Gentiles at the margin who need to be observed and loved and brought in. Those are my three. I leave them for you to think about what, who are the spiritually marginal and how is God calling us to use our privilege to seek them out and bring them in. Which brings us finally to number five, direction. Every partnership that's going somewhere has to have direction. We take our instruction from the word of God. Paul says here to Archippus, you see there near the end of the chapter, see that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. Now, you know that this letter would have been written or, excuse me, read in the entire church of Colossae, and then it was supposed to be passed on to Laodicea and Heropolis, and everybody reading this letter would have put, known old poor Archippus. That's that brother Paul said, man, finish your ministry. And you know the first one to call him Monday after this had been read Sunday in church? The children's ministry director. You heard what Paul said. We, we need some volunteers in children's ministry. <laughs> Fulfill your ministry, brother, you know. And right behind the children's ministry director would have been the, the ushers and the hospitality coordinator. That brother would have been out in the parking lot, parking cars. He could never say no to any ministry assignment again in his life. <laughs> and what Paul says to Archippus falls upon our ears and shoulders too, doesn't it? See to it that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Work at it as unto the Lord, knowing that it's from the Lord that you receive a reward and knowing that it's the Lord that you glorify. Is that our resolve? Here, Archippus had received apparently apostolic instruction. We, no less, have received the more sure word of prophecy, the more sure apostolic instruction. 
And Christ has called us to be ambassadors of this gospel, to make him known to the nations, to make him known in our neighborhoods, make him known in our families. He's placed each of us, 1 Corinthians 12, in the body just as he pleased and given each of us gifts for the service of the body, for the building up of the body, every part being essential. How is the Lord instructing you to play your part in this partnership? Whether you're a member of the church with no particular role beyond that important role of being a member, or whether you have some other kind of leadership role in the church, small groups, pastoral ministry. If you're leading in those capacities, are you fulfilling your ministry? And are you equipping and helping others on your team to do the same? To complete what Christ has given them. An instruction in the word and in a calling upon their lives. I pray that you are. I pray that I am. I pray that we are together. So beloved, Do the work of the ministry in partnership, not alone. The weight of the ministry is too heavy and our shoulders are too slight. Get many hands to make the work light. And find people who are dedicated to the task, who will handle disappointments with the gospel, who will be devoted to each other in brotherly love, who will aid the diversity of the church by giving up their privilege first to follow Christ and then using their privilege in Christ to include others. And finally, who will do all of that by the book. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you that you have not left us alone in this world, but set us in your family And you've called us to this family business of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we love to do it. We really do. We come to conferences like this and we are made aware of ways in which we need to grow and maybe of some shortcomings. But we trust that this awareness is not for our discouragement. That this awareness in the hands of your spirit and the sufficiency of your grace is for our growth and for our deeper joy. And so, Lord, as we conclude tonight, we do pray that you would press upon our spirit maybe one thing, or maybe two, as you give us capacity, to pursue, to apply, to work at, so that we might be better leaders, and that we might build stronger teams, and so that your people would know the blessing of it. Do this for your glory, for the beauty of your church, And for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.